Welcome to the Lighthouse Community Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope today's teaching will encourage you in your faith and help you develop an increasing desire to walk with God. Let's listen in. Someone was uh, active with Photoshop, it looks like. We're, we are so glad you're here at Lighthouse Community this morning, whether you're here in the house or whether you're watching on the live stream. Uh, welcome to Lighthouse this morning. Uh, this is Memorial Day. It's a holiday weekend. I, actually, I, you guys are the ones that had no place to go, I guess. Everybody, or maybe there's some visitors. Everybody's here this morning. Yeah, this is the day we remember that our freedom is not free, and we're thankful for those who uh, gave so much so that we could be here in freedom this morning. Now, today's a bit of an unusual day. Uh, some of you might, uh, excuse me, might know that Pastor Fritz was here at 9.09, and then uh, he hopped in the car and ran down to Bluffton and asked me on Tuesday if I would uh, kind of step in for him. Uh, we've had a tragedy that's uh, affected our church. Uh, some of you may know the Cotters, uh, Marty and Christy Cotter, and uh, they're a large family. They have six kids and uh, five girls and then a son. And their youngest son, a two-year-old little boy, uh, passed away this past Monday. And so that church is uh, hurting. That church is kind of maneuvering through. Marty's a member of our leadership team, uh, part of teaching team. And uh, you know, last week, uh, Clark was in Sunday school. And this week, Clark is learning from Jesus directly. You know, it's just a, just a remarkable time. And so uh, he just felt like, you know, I need to be with that church family along with Ben and help them as they kind of journey through this tragedy. So this morning, um, Fritz is down there, and uh, I've asked uh, Jeff Hall. Jeff is uh, one of our leaders here in the church. He leads a family group, and he's part of uh, the, the prayer team. I've asked him if he would just come to the front, and maybe he would pray uh, for us as we support Bluffton and the Bluffton community supports uh, the church down there. Good morning, everybody. If you would, let's go to prayer. Father, uh, it's with hardship that we come to you this morning, Father, um, for the Cotter family, for the family of churches, um, the body of Christ around the world, people suffering everywhere, Father, but uh, in Bluffton especially, for the Cotter family, losing their son, Zach, two years old. Father, you brought him into this world, and then you brought him right with you. He never got to experience hardship, uh, suffering. Father, he's just in heaven right now looking down at us. He's there with joy, and, and we're here with sadness, Father. Just the same sadness that you had when you let your son go to the cross on behalf of all of us. So, Father, for the team down in Bluffton, we lift them up as they console and, and put their arms around the Cotter family. Uh, five daughters uh, from 23 down to six years old. Father, this is going to be hard for them uh, for the rest of their life. But they pray, or we pray, that they would have uh, in time that they would find joy uh, for the time that they spent with their son or their brother, Father, and not just the loss of him being in heaven with you, which we all have that appointment with death, Lord, and um, it just doesn't make it any easier. But, Father, we just pray for them, and we pray for that family, and we ask this all in and through Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jeff. Since this is Lighthouse University, I'm going to sit down today. How's that? Yeah. 
So, um, yeah, pray for the Cotter family, if you would. Uh, as uh, you think about them, think about the Bluffton community as they kind of surround that family and help them maneuver through just, a, just an extraordinary time. I was down there on Wednesday. They had a prayer meeting, and there was, there was a, a ton of really raw emotion as people are processing uh, what just happened. A little boy just, just uh, didn't wake up on Monday morning. And so uh, let's pray for the Cotter family. Now, this is a transition week between sermons. Last week, uh, we were talking about focus, resisting the drift away from Jesus. We were working through the book of Hebrews, and beginning next week, we're starting a new series on prayer, uh, finding the authentic in prayer. It's going to be a great series. We've been working on that here uh, for a couple weeks at the church, and I think that's going to be a great series that's coming up next week. I'm excited as I look at the Lighthouse community, as I look down at Bluffton, where we're pretty close together working on the same things, to see all of the things that God is doing in the hearts and the minds of people. And God works in our hearts as we, as we look at the scripture and we see him there. And as we pray together, we see the things God has done. We see his character. We see the things that God loves, the thing, things that God hates. We see all of that in the scripture, and as we, we study the scripture and we meditate on that, we're changed. We're changed by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, as we look at the truth of scripture. We catch these glimpses of God all the way through the scripture, New Testament and Old, that show us what God's really like. And as we, we dive into that, we're changed. So today we're doing what's called systematic theology. Rather than taking one passage and kind of working through that passage together, and instead we're taking this, this topic of the Trinity, and we're going to look across the scriptures at what God has said about that topic. So uh, there's going to be lots of different scripture passages, and so the vast majority of those will be up on the screen, so we're not flipping back and forth and trying to find uh, those passages. They'll be right there to read as we go through those. Now, we are created in the image of God. That's something that applies only to people, not to animals. We're created in the image of God. And because of that, we share many characteristics that God has. Okay, for instance, um, we're, we're damaged by sin. We know that. So it's not a perfect comparison, but we share characteristics. For instance, uh, compassion. Um, we know what compassion is because we've shown compassion and we have felt compassion. It's part of our collective experience, compassion. Uh, we know what mercy is. We know what it is to have received mercy when we, <laughs> we should have received something else, right? We know what mercy is. We know what patience is. Debbie is far more patient than me, okay? Everyone knows that. Um, we know what forgiveness is. We've probably forgiven somebody, and somebody has forgiven us. These are common experiences, but they reflect back on the very character of God. We share those experiences, we know what love is. We know what genuine love is. And you can think of, through a whole lot of different characteristics of God, things like his wrath, his truthfulness, his jealousy, his wisdom, his justice. These are characteristics of God that we share to some degree. Now, we don't have a perfect reflection. You know, I don't forgive the way God forgives, but I know something about forgiveness. It's part of our common experience. But the Bible also talks about a lot of characteristics of God that we do not share. Okay, these are more uh, what I would call transcendent characteristics. For instance, um, God is eternal. God has no beginning. God has no end. God is. 
There's no past, there's no present, there's no future. Time is something he created. He created the sun, moon, and stars. God is above and beyond time. God is eternal. Uh, God is infinite. God has no boundaries. We have boundaries. We live in a, in a physical world. God doesn't. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere present. God is invisible. God is a spirit. Now, Jesus has a body. God the Father is a spirit. God isn't changing. God's holy. God's righteous. He's without sin. God is sovereign. He has the ability to do anything that he wills. He's sovereign. And today's topic is God is triune. Triune. Now, the Trinity is the teaching that there is one God, yet three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, the notion that we can fully understand God is kind of stretched. You know, when you think about the transcendent characteristics of God, there's a lot of stuff in there that we can describe in words. We can write it down and figure out what the Bible says. But to really understand what it means to be triune, you know, that's beyond human capacity. Theologian Wayne Grudem, I have a slide for this, defines the Trinity uh, this way with great clarity. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. You have to wrap your head around that thing, right? It's a difficult thing for us to try to comprehend. Now, I've heard lots of illustrations over the years about what God is like. For instance, I've heard people say that God is like water. There's liquid water, and there's steam, and there's ice. The problem with that is uh, water is one thing in three different forms, and God is three distinct persons. So it's not really a, a fair comparison at all. Um, I've heard it said, well, it's like relationships. I'm a father, okay, but I'm also a son, and I'm also a grandfather. But those are just relationships. I'm not three different people. I'm one person. And so sometimes the illustrations that we use are really kind of far from what the Bible actually says. Now, to help uh, kind of unwind the definition, we have a little video that we want to show you now. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. 
Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously... I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. Okay, that was probably a bit much. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush, Patrick. Well, now that we have that up. <laughs> oh, Patrick. Okay, so the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. They are distinct persons, yet there is one God. That's what the, te the, the Scriptures teach. Um, the word Trinity does not occur in the Bible. You won't read a verse about the Trinity where this is said in those words. Okay, instead, uh, the word Trinity is used by theologians to describe the triunity of God. Uh, Wayne Grudem says it very concisely, but to get to his definition, you have to read across Scripture and put all the pieces of the puzzle together. It's not one verse that you can read that says it in that way. Someone uh, has, people have said to me in the past, well, I would never, ever worship a God that I can't fully understand. And I'm thinking to myself, he's the creator. He's the transcendent God. He's eternal. He's invisible. If you have to fully understand God before you believe, you probably will never believe. God is Trinity. Consider what's written in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. It says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. God is not like us, and some things belong to God alone. Uh, I think the human mind is going to forever, those who are believers who are with God, will forever be exploring the infinites of God. God is that big, and we have to see it that way. But this is an important point I think we need to make. Even though we can't know God completely, we can't know everything about God, to do that we would have to be God himself. We can still know him in authenticity because God has revealed himself to us. Now the plan this morning is to look at a number of Bible texts 
that talk about the Trinity, the triunity of God. Now, first of all, we'll talk about uh, um, that God is one. There is one God, and then we'll talk about the triune aspect of God as we go. Uh, Many religions in the world, as you know, have uh, lots of different gods. There can be thousands of different gods in the Hindu religion. Uh, Some people out there would say that Christians actually have three gods. If you're uh, from a Muslim viewpoint, that might be your viewpoint. But the Bible teaches there is only one God who has three persons. So let's start with the one God. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It is clear from the Bible that there is one God. In fact, you can go all over the Old Testament And you'll read over and over everywhere across the the Old Testament that God is one. Now, do you remember what the first commandment is in the Ten Commandments? Yeah, no other gods before me. Uh, There is only one God. That's the first commandment. No idolatry of any kind is ever acceptable. Only God, the one God, is the one we worship. That same truth, however, flows from the Old Testament into the New if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, you read this, there is one God and there is one mediator who can reconcile God to humanity, the man, Jesus Christ. Now we're going to talk about salvation as a proof for the Trinity in just a minute, but it's important to know this, that the Old Testament and the New Testament, they all start with the same idea, and that is that there is one God. Now the second truth is that God is displayed as Trinity in the Bible, okay? Three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all fully God, each distinct from each other, and yet there is one God. That's the teaching of Scripture. So I want to spend the majority of our time uh, together this morning on this second point that God is triune by looking at four different evidences or four different places or different ways that the Trinity is explained in the scriptures. Now the first, there's more than four, but we're just going to dial in on these four. The first is that the Trinity is exposed in creation. Now as a starting point, uh, we have to realize that Jesus himself is eternal. In the last week of Jesus' life, uh, before he was arrested that led to the cross, uh, he's speaking with his disciples. And in John chapter 17, uh, he says this, Now Father, Bring me into the glory that we had before the world began. Think about that. Jesus is in the flesh. He's with his disciples. He's praying to the Father who is in heaven, and he's talking about the glory that he had with God before the world began. Jesus is eternal. Now, uh, Jesus had a human body, He's, he's there before the disciples, but he's talking about his eternal nature. Now, I want to take that thought that Jesus is eternal for a minute and just kind of set that on the back burner. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, how the triune God, God was in, engaged in creation itself. It's remarkable when you read the account from Genesis uh, chapter 1 and then reach forward into the New Testament as further uh, the creation is explained further. Now, Genesis chapter 1 starts this way. Uh, In the beginning, God, a singular word, God, created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. 
And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, he called the darkness night. So in the beginning, there was nothing. There was darkness, and there was void until God spoke and created the heavens and the earth. But we see that the Holy Spirit was right there, hovering over the face of the deep, over the waters, right? The first thing God created was light, right? And then uh, he spoke light into existence. And then you can read through the, uh, the six days of creation, all the different things that God created. And when we get to verse uh, 26 of chapter 1, we see the creation of, of people, right? And this is what it says, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals of the earth, the small animals that scurry along the ground. And so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You have to look at the clear language and the tenses of the words that are said, right? God, singular, said, let us, plural, make man in our image. So uh, the English probably isn't that good. There's no parallelism there. Okay, you have the single and the plural all together. Uh, but there's a plurality of God involved in creation from the very beginning. Now, we know that Jesus is eternal from John 17. We put that on the shelf just a minute ago. Pull that back in, okay? And something plural is going on in creation. We know the Holy Spirit is there. We know God the Father is there. Um, so let's bridge forward to talk about creation uh, from the standpoint of uh, first, or John chapter 1 in the New Testament. The language starts the same way Genesis starts in the beginning, right? And then John chapter 1 says this, in the beginning, the word, now the word is a biblical name for Jesus. Okay, so you could read it this way. In the beginning, Jesus already existed. We've already talked about that. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except what was created through him. Jesus is there from the beginning. We know that from John 17.5 and from this verse and other places in Scripture. And he is the one through whom the world was created. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit were all active in creation, yet God created the world. You've got to think about this. The world in which we live, we know it's a temporary place. Sometimes young children die. We know this is a temporary place. But there is a God who created everything that we see, everything that we hold dear, uh, who directs whether or not I get one more breath. Yeah, God the creator is engaged in his creation. We're looking at evidence for the Trinity in the Bible. The first one is the creation of the world. The second I'd like to talk about is baptism. 
For this point, we can look at the Gospel of Matthew at chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. And it says this, After his baptism, after Jesus' baptism, he came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and John saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on Jesus. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. He brings me great joy. At the baptism of Jesus, we three see the three distinct persons of the Trinity all there at the same time. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the one being baptized, right? The Father is speaking, and the Holy Spirit is descending as a dove and landing on Jesus. We see the Trinity in the baptism of Jesus. Now, the, the baptism uh, is taken forward when we think about making new disciples, and we baptize people here. You know, we bring the big metal tank out, and we baptize people when they come to faith. And uh, Matthew 28 talks about this. Jesus told his disciples, I have been given all authority on heaven and earth, authority given to him by the Father. He was submissive to the Father as the Son. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so when we baptize in the big metal tank here in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, we're, we're kind of mimicking the baptism of Jesus because all three parts of the Trinity are involved. So far we've looked at creation and we've looked at baptism. And I want to switch gears and talk about salvation because our salvation also uh, points to the triune God. Ephesians chapter 1 says this, Even before he made the world, God loved us, and he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. Salvation through Jesus, was in the mind of God before he created the world. This wasn't a new idea that came later. It's something that God planned all along. Consider Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 3. It expands on what we just read in Ephesians. The law of Moses was unable to save us. The Ten Commandments never saved anybody because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So, God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. He had a physical body. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirements of the law could be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead... We follow the Holy Spirit. You see, the Father sent the Son, right? This was God's plan before eternity, before creation. We see that Jesus was the sacrifice that paid for our sin. We talked about that in our Hebrew series the last few weeks. But we also see that the Holy Spirit is there in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. He, he seals the believer in Christ. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all involved intimately in our salvation before God. It's remarkable. Now, uh, 
Let's push forward to the, toward the ends of Romans in chapter uh, 8, verse 9. At the end of verse 9 there it says, uh, You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who don't have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. You see, the Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ, and He's also called the Spirit of God. It's the same Spirit. It's just a statement of Trinity that's flowing through the Scripture. There's a warning, though, also in this verse. And you have to think about it to see the warning, and it's this. If the Holy Spirit is not present in the life of the believer, there has been no genuine salvation. Because all genuinely saved people have the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life. And we could talk more about God's eternal plan for salvation. There's a great deal of information in the Bible that we could talk about. We could expound upon the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We talked about that a lot in the Hebrews series. We could talk about verses where the Holy Spirit draws us to faith, draws us to faith because of the goodness of God, uh, how the Holy Spirit seals us in our faith. We could talk about all those doctrines from the Bible, but this is the main point. Uh, for this talk anyway, uh, salvation points to the triunity of God. All three persons of the Trinity are involved. Now the final evidence I want to talk about today is simply the language of Scripture. The language of Scripture. As you read the Bible, you see all these Trinitarian statements all the way through the Bible, New Testament, Old, that points to something different than uh, what some religions might teach. Creation, baptism, salvation, all of those main doctrines of the Christian faith all point to the triune God very clearly in the Scripture. And so now I'd like to just kind of go through a handful of additional Scriptures that point to different aspects of Trinity from the language of Scripture itself. And I think what we'll see is that God in His fullness actually indwells genuine believers. The first is Colossians chapter 1. It says this, God in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, through Christ, God reconciled everything to himself. That's a statement about salvation. Colossians chapter 2, 9. For in Christ lives the fullness of God in a human body, linking the spirit, or, uh, Jesus and the Father together. Jesus is God in the flesh. That's what the Bible proclaims in John chapter 1. Now Acts 5.33, I didn't uh, put that on a slide, but there you see Ananias um, lying okay, to the disciples, and Peter confronts him and he said, you know, you lied to the Holy Spirit. You didn't lie to us, but you lied to God. And in that verse, he's talking about lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to God as the same thing. It's a Trinitarian statement. John chapter 14, verse 9, records an interaction between Jesus and Philip, one of the disciples. And this is what he says. Have I been with you all this time, Philip? And still, you don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's what Jesus said to, to Philip. Through his ministry years, it was common for people to pick up stones to, to throw at and pummel Jesus to death. They always wanted to stone him or throw him off a cliff or something 
Because in the Jewish mind, a person who blasphemes, who says that they are God, should be killed. And the people of the day clearly understood what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying this, I'm God in the flesh. I'm here representing God. It's really clear in John chapter 10.30 where Jesus comes right out and says it. I and my Father are one. The Trinity. I want to branch forward just a little bit and talk about um, some of the things that John the Apostle records for us uh, in the last week, that final week of Jesus' life before the cross. Uh, it seems like John, uh, Jesus is just doubling down on truth, things that we need to know, things we need to understand. In John chapter 14, beginning at 15, it says this, If you love me, obey my commandments. Now, he's not talking about legalism here. Okay, He's talking about a transformed life, a natural result of being a person of faith. Verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth. The world can't receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him, but you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. Talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in all genuine believers. And then Jesus replies, verse 23, all who love me and do what I say, the common response to genuine faith is to be a follower, right? Not to resist God, but to follow. My Father will love them and we will come and make our home in each of them. Wow. Genuine Christians are indwelled by the fullness of God. The Holy Spirit was sent. You know, it's good that I go away because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He'll be in you, the Spirit of truth, who's going to lead you into all truth. And again, what we said before, the warning, those who don't have the presence of God in them are actually maybe religious, but they're not believers. They're far away from God. We often talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but from John's teaching it here, here it, it's very clear that the presence of God is with those who have genuine belief. Another verse is from John chapter 15. Jesus said this, I am, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Yeah, the Holy Spirit, or uh, Jesus himself, abiding with Christians, uh, Christians bearing fruit as they abide in Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, I love this verse, it's so clear. Paul's speaking and it's like, this is the secret. You want to know the secret of faith? This is it. Christ lives in you. And this is the assurance of glory. Yeah, Christians have the abiding presence of God in them. Romans chapter 8, verse 10 says this, Christ lives within you, so even though this body is going to die because of sin, the Spirit gives us life because we've been made right with God. We're talking about eternal life, eternal life that begins at the moment we believe. That's when it starts. Um, there's a couple passages I just put up on the screen there. Uh, Romans chapter 8, uh, John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. The book of Colossians are the first chapter. Those are great places to go just to read 
uh, and to get the, the weight of what the scriptures say about our relationship with God and to, and to pay particular attention to Trinitarian statements that flow all the way through those verses in our relationship with God. You know, self-discovery, as we read the scriptures and we see the character of God, we see the things he's done in the spirit of truth who lives in us, um, opens our hearts, opens our minds. That's the key to spiritual growth. That's how we walk closer to God each week. So you're thinking about all the stuff we've talked about. I've thrown a ton of stuff at you, haven't I? Like, here's all these verses, like drinking out of a fire hose. It's just like coming at us, right? And so I get that. Okay, this is systematic theology. We're going to take a topic all the way through Scripture, and it's a little less devotional and a little bit dense in contact. I get that. We don't do this every week, but uh, sometimes we do. Um, I want to get down to the practical side, okay? Let's talk about this. What are the implications that we should draw from this truth? that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. What are the implications of that in terms of daily life, things that really matter to us? The first thing I'd say is this. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you're a seeker, okay, if you're thinking about this and you haven't really stepped into faith, or maybe you don't have the presence of God in your life and you're beginning to wonder whether you're genuinely part of God's family or not, whatever your circumstance, this is the truth. Jesus displays perfectly who God is. We saw that in the first part of Hebrews in our study there. Uh, by going to a gospel okay, and reading the life of Jesus, you're actually engaging God himself as you study the person of Jesus. Okay? So uh, God is not far away. God is not hidden. And so if you're interested in this and you're thinking about, uh, you know, how do I really find God? I'd look at Jesus in the New Testament. I'd read one of the Gospels because that's where God displays himself in human form for us to read and see. The second point I'd make is this. The second implication is this. If Jesus was not God, he could never have died for our sin because God required a perfect sacrifice, a sinless sacrifice. We talked about that in Hebrews also. Jesus was born of a virgin. He had no sin nature. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was the perfect high priest. And what all that means is that he gives us access to God himself. We don't come to Jesus on our own. We come to Jesus, uh, to, uh, to, to God on our own. We come to God um, with Jesus. He, he's the introducer. He's the mediator. He's the one that gives us access to God himself. We pray through Jesus. He's the one who gives us access directly to God's presence. And you are invited to come inside. Nobody's excluded. Everybody's invited to come inside through Christ. The next thing I'd say is this. Uh, the mark of a genuine faith, of genuine faith, is the active presence of God in the life of a believer. I don't want you to miss that point. It's essential that we understand the active presence of God in our life is the, is the indicator that our faith is real. Now, um, lots of religions would have you believe you're okay if you do the checklist of things. Sometimes people say, well, all you gotta do is pray this prayer and you'll be saved. But the reality is this, genuine belief is always marked by the active presence of God in the life of a person. Spiritual transformation starts right there. 
So if you're struggling in your life saying, hey, you know, I, some people say to me regularly, you know, I'm not sure if I'm really a believer. They struggle with that question. That's actually na- natural and normal to think that through. And that's a good question to be asking. Um, the, the answer I would say is go back to number one. Jesus has displayed who God is in the New Testament, right? You can read a gospel and you can read about what God, what, what genuine faith is. Jesus taught about it all over the New Testament, right? And so you can go there and you can find God. Mark of genuine faith is the active presence of God in the life of a believer. You can go to the New Testament and you can read uh, all the things Jesus said and all the things he did, and it can open your eyes to faith. You know, it's the goodness of God that draws us to salvation. It's the Holy Spirit that draws us there. Last year, uh, we were at the baptism of my oldest granddaughter. Okay, she was seven years old. Seven years old, the baptismal tank, they had like a wall and her little head is sticking up over the top like this, you know. And she gave testimony, okay, at that event that she believed who Jesus is. She believed in God. And she had confessed her sin and asked God to come into her life. She, she proclaimed that to the whole church, okay, over the, over the little wall. And I remember afterwards, I'm talking to her just one-on-one. I said, well, you know, tell me what happened. And she's, she's saying, you know, Grandpa, I, I just feel different now. I don't feel like I used to feel, okay? The active presence of God was in her. She knew the difference between genuine faith and something that was a substitute. And the last implication I'd say is this. There is unity, perfect unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's never conflict. And actually in John chapter 17, uh, Jesus says the unity between the Trinity is the kind of the example for unity within the church. And he also says this, when there's unity in the church between the people of God, it's evangelism. Because people on the outside see that unity, which is so rare in our world of conflict, they know there's something up. Yeah, when there's unity among the people in the church, that points to the unity that is God. Let's pray together this morning. I'd like you to bow your heads, close your eyes. I'd like to ask you to ask this question. What is God saying to you right now from these passages we've heard from the scripture. We're going to sing one more song, and we're going to have prayer leaders from our prayer team in the four corners of the room. We'll have some up in the front here. We'll have some in the back. And this is a time, if you want to pray with one of our prayer leaders, for you to slip out of your chair, okay, and go to the front or go to the back and to pray with somebody here this morning. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It can be anything that you wish to pray about in your life. You don't have to be a member of Lighthouse. You don't have to be a certain age. Anybody is invited in prayer. You know, we should never be embarrassed to pray because God hears us when we pray. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then this will be your time if you want to pray with a prayer partner. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your grace in our lives. And right now, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit you would draw each person into prayer, maybe where they sit, maybe with a prayer partner, that you would turn our eyes to you. And we pray this through Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us. 
If you'd like to learn more about Lighthouse Community, check out our website at mylighthousecommunity.com or connect with us on Facebook. You're invited to join us live Sunday mornings at 909 or 1111. Thanks again for listening to the Lighthouse Community Podcast.